You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. And uh, as you're turning there, go ahead and dive in. So when we survey the landscape of the New Testament, we find that one of the main emphasis you'll see is on maturity. And what do I mean? <clears throat> that each Christian is to grow to look more like the Savior that died for them. We see the New Testament as categories of spiritual children all the way to the spiritually mature or spiritual adults. We can think of the Christian life as stages from first converted infant in the faith to childhood to young adults to adulthood. <clears throat> and we each are somewhere on that spectrum and are all called to move forward in adulthood, which unlike physical maturity, is this maturity is not a given. It takes work. Paul saw the maturity of the church as one of his major life goals. <clears throat> he knew he wasn't going to live forever. He wanted the churches to thrive in spiritual adulthood. In Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29, Paul writes, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And when we see Paul's zeal for maturity, we think, you know, you go, Paul. You've got this. That's your job. That's what you do. And then now that he's gone, we kind of assume that's for the pastors. That's the pastor's job. But what we can often overlook is that maturity takes the whole church. See, the mission of maturity takes the whole church. And this is the main point for today. The mission of maturity takes the whole church. Christian maturity is not merely that you're concerned with your own godliness and your own pursuit of sanctification, which you are, but that you're also concerned with the godliness of those around you because you are one body as a whole. So we pursue the maturity of the church together as we do this life together. And to frame this sermon in our series, we must not only, as it's an apply, must not only apply scripture to ourselves, but also to others. We must speak the truth in love. And today, the pastoral heart, as was mentioned, is going to be speaking the truth in love and specifically thinking about those struggling with sin and suffering. How do we care for them? Speaking the truth in love. It's a familiar text we'll be examining today. And I pray that the Lord gives us fresh eyes to see the glories that he has for us in his word. So uh, we're going to read all of chapter 4 of Ephesians, uh, but we're going to settle in on the first half of verse 15, speak the truth in love. So let's read Ephesians together. I, th I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascends, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. 
And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head into the Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow up so that it builds itself in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of your minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of the heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, to greed, to every practice of impurity. But that is not the way you have learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God to whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And zooming back into 15, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head into Christ. But when we hear that first half, we say, well, speaking can be intimidating. Truth can seem cold. Love can seem vague. <clears throat> but from the context around these, this verse, we can't help but notice the gravity of what is at stake. You see, there's, there's two things at play. Both a, a negative, we don't want to be children tossed around by wind of doctrine. And there's also a positive. We are to mature in Christ-likeness. The reality of what hangs in the balance could not be more stark. For Risen Hope Church <clears throat> to become more like Christ, you must speak the truth in love to one another. For Risen Hope Church not to be tossed around by winds of doctrine and unstable, you must speak the truth in love to one another. The stakes are extremely high. We either be tossed around by the world's ideas like a ship tossed in a storm, or we'd be grounded and made to look more like Christ. We will either be unstable, or we will be firm. We will be running around frantically for the next fix, or we will rest in the glories of the gospel. We will either be shrinking back or moving forward in faith. We will either run to the world or run to Christ. I think if we're honest, um, we can all identify with the analogy he uses of being tossed around back and forth by waves. 
We can identify with that at some point or another, right? Unstable in our soul because we couldn't see straight, weren't grounded on God's word, felt like we were in a free fall spiritually. And what is doing the tossing? What are these waves? He gives us the answer. They are winds of doctrine. See, they're voices of weak teaching. The next big speaker, teacher, or guru that rolls around with the distracting teaching, something contrary to the gospel or hinders the gospel. But don't expect it to necessarily be something that has like a neon sign around it that says, warning, this is dangerous. Warning, this will shipwreck your life. No, as it goes on, we see that the people that are behind this, they're, they're cunning, they're crafty, they're deceitful. This is the stuff that almost looks Christian. At first glance, you don't really see its deception. You think, you know what, that's harmless, that might help, I can add that to the gospel. And so friends, we must be careful what input we have. And also, one of God's protections for us is each other. God protects us through each other. And not only does it, uh, speaking the truth and love, have a protecting effect, it also edifies and builds up as the Spirit of God works through us by his word. See, our faith is a church project. We all have one identity. We are, as we see, the body of Christ. The more one of us looks like Christ, the more the whole looks like Christ. This is our goal. We see that in verse 15 and 16. We are to grow up into Christ. And I tried to think of an analogy of, of what's going on here, and I really couldn't. Like, okay, we're all working together. We all have different gifts, and we're all becoming more like Christ. And as we speak the truth and love, each one of us looks more like Christ. I was like, I don't really know what fits that, the glorious nature of that reality of the church life. And I think that's because it's that. It, it doesn't quite fit anything. What organism, what organization works like that, that we become more like Christ. And so this is the glory of the church. And so speaking the truth is both a protection and a provision for the church. And now I want to look a little bit closer at the command itself. And I want to ask three simple questions. Who is called to speak? What are we called to speak? And how are we called to speak it? So point number one, who is called to speak? We are speaking the truth in love. See, God created us in his image to be communal. You see this in Genesis where he created it and man in relationship to him, and then he creates the women to be in their relationship to each other. And then in the new creation, in Christ, we are embedded into the church. We're in Christ and therefore in his body. He's made us a part of the church. And we too often in the West think of ourselves more in an individualized way. And we do bear the foremost responsibility for our sanctification, right? We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But in addition to that, we all have the responsibility to spur one another on to maturity. So who speaks? The whole body. Everyone, right? Each one as they're working properly. In fact, in, in, when we see this verse, you know, we often think about pastors and things like that, but that's not really what 
is in vision here? Who is in vision here? Look at verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, talking about Jesus, and he gave the apostles, prophets, and evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You see, we don't have time to deal with that whole list there, but the elders, our job is to equip you for the work of ministry. See, you are in the picture here. It's our job to equip you to do this task. And absolutely, the pastors are called to do soul care. But if you have been saved by Jesus, you are also called to do it as well. You are called to counsel, to care for, to speak the truth in love. And this isn't speaking of a platform, but daily life when we gather together. And in this context, ministry implies that he's talking about a call for us to all use our gifts, right? We all have varied gifts. So some have the gift of prophecy, some may not. Some speak in tongues, some do not. Some have the gift of hospitality, some do not. But all are called to speak the truth and love. It threads through all the ministries of the body of Christ. Many gifts all speak one truth. And our culture glorifies platforms, right? It glorifies platforms and professionalism, right? So this is the real stuff. The idea I've got to be on a stage or, you know, the professional, the, the paid pastor is the, really the only one who can care for me, for my soul. But again, the, the, min, the pastors aren't the only one called to do ministry, right? You are called to do the work of ministry, you see, God radically flips things upside down. Daily life, one-on-one in small groups, when you have a family over for dinner, Sunday gatherings as you talk to one another, your home with your kids is where much of the church ministry gets done. And as we sit under the preach word equipped by God's word, and then we go out into all those and we speak the truth in every area. You know, this is gonna be different for Everyone, from men, women, children, based on your age, young or old, but no Christian is excluded, right? It builds itself up, verse 16, when functioning properly. For the church to mature properly, the body must function properly. The mission of maturity takes the whole church. And then two, what are we called to speak? When we see the word, the truth, um, and we're called to speak the truth, it, it, it may feel cold to us, right? It may feel cold to us. Maybe because someone, you know, titled a biblical counselor, used this to employ a poorly handled confrontation, or maybe when you needed the comfort of the gospel, they offered the correction of the gospel. Or maybe you have a friend who's like, you know, I just speak the truth in love. That's what I do. And maybe you are that friend. You know, they feel the need to say whatever comes to mind when really self-control, grace, and restraint is needed. But in spite of the failures of others, let the word of God warm our hearts to the beauty of this phrase, the truth. It's so simple, but not simplistic. Notice first it is not, or it is in the singular, not truths, but the truth. In chapter four, we read that there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, and one faith. In chapter and 4, verses 21, read that the truth is in Jesus. What a sweet phrase. The truth is in Jesus. We speak of Jesus. 
All of that that means. Think of Jesus. He was perfect even though he had an imperfect family of origin. He died that we might be righteous, not just good. The word, has, the word righteous has a direction, right with God. He suffered so that he might be a faithful high priest who can identify with us in our weaknesses. He died so that we might walk with him by his spirit through our suffering. We are human beings created by God to be in relationship with God. In the early 1900s, there was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor, theologian, and eventually a spy. Um, he courageously faced the rise of Nazism, eventually killed by the Nazis for his role in a plot, conspiracy to kill Hitler. However, when he was alive, he pushed back against the ideologies of his day. And during this time, there was the rise of psych secular psychological and psychoanalytic theorists, Maslow, Freud, Skinner, and the humanistic worldviews that had no category for a God who ruled over all. And the worldviews they espoused were in full swing during his day. And in this context, he writes, The most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Christ. The greatest psychological insight, ability, experience cannot grasp this one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are, but it does not know the godlessness of man. And so it also does not know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare to be a sinner. The psychiatrist must first search my heart, yet he never plumbs its ultimate depths. The Christian brother knows when I come to him, here is a sinner like myself a godless man who wants to confess and yearns for God's forgiveness. The psychiatrist views me as if there, was, there were no God. The brother views me as I am before the judging and merciful God in the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross frames everything. And it also frames our suffering, right? Not only our sin, but also our suffering. To speak the truth not only addresses sin, but also speaks of the glories of God who meets us in a suffering, who brings healing, hope, and help. Think of Jesus and his suffering. It had a trajectory upward and outward. He loved his own to the end, and he did it for the glory of the Father. And he was forsaken by the Father on the cross so that you and I won't have to be for all those who repent and believe. And this is why Peter can command us to rejoice in our suffering. God redeems our suffering. God meets us in our suffering. God ordains and uses our suffering. This is the truth that is in Jesus. So no matter what you've experienced, abuse, neglect, victimization, the horrors of war, car wreck, we have a Savior who meets us there. We have a Savior who has endured the horrible trauma of the cross, the full wrath of God. It draws near to those who are his. So we speak all of scripture in light of the work of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the indwelling of the spirit, the heart of the father, the final redemption and the new kingdom. 
And so I don't take Paul here by saying the truth, referencing the gospel, the truth is in Jesus. I don't take him to mean that we're just speaking of gospel truths without reference to other texts in scripture, the Old Testament. He's not pitting the Old Testament against the New Testament. Rather, if I were to give a description, I would say this. So what does he mean by truth? All of scripture and its fulfillment in and relationship to God's saving work. All of scripture and its fulfillment in and relationship to God's saving work in Jesus. So in other words, it's all of scripture in light of the gospel, in light of Jesus, in light of who he is and what he's done. Because all of scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The fact that it says truth, singular, shows the cohesive, unified nature of the Bible. God has given us one truth. He doesn't keep changing the mark between the Old Testament and the New or anything like that. There is one reality, one plan of salvation, one God, one Savior. The world constantly changes its mark. I don't know if you've noticed that. Constantly changing. What is salvation? If you want to see a difference, just ask your grandparents. They didn't grow up in the world of gender ideology, which your salvation is in your self-expression. But they did grow up in a land that worshipped self-sufficiency. My grandma, my mom's mom, I remember in her latter years, uh, she was talking to my mom and she was just like overwhelmed with the reality that she could depend on Jesus. It was just blown away. And that sounds funny to us, but she grown up thinking I have to be self-sufficient. I have to pull up myself by my bootstraps. And so for the first time, like a child, she's coming to the realization that she doesn't have to that she can trust Jesus. She'd grown up in the depression, all those things, and she was learning in her latter years, I can trust my Savior. I can trust him. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that he preached nothing except Christ and him crucified, yet he speaks of many different biblical doctrines and applies it all very specifically in life. So what, Paul, do you mean? And I take him to mean what I said, he's talking about all of scripture and its fulfillment in a relationship to God's saving work in Jesus. So we speak the truth in love, we speak the gospel, we speak all of scripture to one another. And we know that this truth stands against every wind of doctrine, produces Christ-likeness. The world has many winds of doctrines. We have one savior and one truth. The world is always coming up with an alternative story of salvation, of identity, problems, solutions, and hopes. These abound everywhere you look. Some subtle, not, some, not so much. Think about the salvation of, let me introduce a term for you, expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you've not. But you've seen its shipwrecking effect. Simply put, it's the worldview that the individual must express what they feel their identity is at all costs because self-actualization is their greatest good. In other words, you do you. That is what will satisfy you. That is what will make you whole. 
What story of salvation does it live in? The identity. You are whatever you feel is your identity. Problem. Lack of self-expression. Bondage from external forces like religion or society. Solution. Be yourself. Do you. Do whatever you feel is right. In other words, live and do what is right in your own eyes with the hope that you will gain freedom. But think about how this has wrecked marriages. Marriages are torn apart as one spouse doesn't worship the other spouse as they think they're desired to be worshipped. And so they leave the marriage. Their their feeling of self-worth isn't worshipped and seen like they think it should be seen. How many boys and girls are in school are getting run through the horrors of a world where a very fabric of created order is being questioned and told you can do whatever you want to be. You can do whatever, be whatever. How many people are depressed as they realize that everything they thought they could be, they couldn't? And even when they did the things they wanted to do and thought it would satisfy their souls, it didn't fulfill them. Becoming wealthy, having the six-figure job, being a world traveler, throwing off the bondage of your gender identity. This enslaves people to death. And insofar as we, church, follow the gimmicks and half-truths, we will be like a ship tossed back and forth, unstable, waffling back and forth, emotionally unstable, constantly looking for hope. Friends, what a privilege it is to offer Christ to one another. What a privilege. This is the truth that we speak to one another. And so the end goals are different. We don't just counsel each other to feel better or change actions or cope with the past. We do want people to feel better and change outward actions and deal with their past hurt. But the gospel offers us something astonishing. It offers for us to meet with the living God and to be like God. He heals, he restores, he redeems, he makes us new. The world can't offer that as much as they try. We know the Savior. And so we use all the scripture and the power of the Spirit to connect it to all of life. We want people to meet Jesus. One specific way I can think back to where the Lord <laughs> counseled his word to my own heart and a very hard struggle. Maybe you've struggled with it. I would call it scrupulosity, right? It's a degrading, compulsive introspection and compulsion to turn inward, to find sin or analyze it. It's a constant running in your head of what you've done wrong or if you did something wrong. In high school, I really, I really struggled with this. I would get so turned in on myself and it felt righteous. It felt spiritual. You know, every time I felt a compulsive thought to, to dive in, to look inward, I would go for it. I would assume it was righteous but it would just be a Ferris wheel of despair. No real change, just turmoil. And the Lord struck me through the counsel of actually Bonhoeffer. And, and he opened my eyes to this reality that life in Christ is less about cautiously avoiding sin, but rather passionately pursuing Christ. Life in Christ is less about cautiously avoiding sin, but rather passionately pursuing Christ. And so it, through that, the Lord just set loose the shackles and set forth a joy, a desire. Your life's goal is beholding Christ, 
And as we do that, we become more like Christ. We be, what we behold, we become. In that moment, the great counselor, God himself, counseled me through Bonhoeffer. And now I have the privilege of sharing that with others. You have the privilege of counseling others with what God has taught you. Now, I don't take in verse 15 to mean only right, reactive like counseling to struggles, to sin, and to suffering, but also it, I think it speaks of the proactive, right? We're to be speaking the truth in love in the mundane moments of life when things are going well, when things seem to be going good and we're not in a major struggle of life. We are in to encourage one another with the gospel. This is to be the average talk amongst us is gospel talk. So how active are you in addressing one another with the truths of the gospel? Is it awkward to talk about the things of God around the house, or is it commonplace? Is it awkward or is it commonplace? Parents, if, it, if it's awkward for you to talk about the gospel, it's going to be awkward for your kids. Expect it to be awkward for your kids, I should say. What a joy it is when the talk of God and all that is doing is commonplace among the people of God. So friend, let's speak the truth in love to one another. And when we talk about speaking the truth of Christ, it's not a cold, detached, merely intellectual, right? It's a doctrine that leads to delight. The Bible is the lens we see all of life through. We need this doctrine because we, and we want to delight in God. The church needs to be equipped with right doctrine, but Paul never has in mind merely intellectual transfer. He's not talking about sitting around and having an idea party. Right? Check the box. Now I have more knowledge about God. J.I. Packer helps us when he writes, if we pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it's bound to go bad on us. It will make us proud and conceited. The very greatness of the subject matter will intoxicate us and we shall come to think of ourselves as a cut above other Christians because of our interest in it and our grasp of it. We shall look down on those whose theological ideas seem to us crude and inadequate and dismiss them as very poor specimens. For as Paul told the conceited Corinthians, knowledge puffs up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. And then he goes on a page later. If you look back to Psalm 119 again, you will see that the psalmist's concern to get knowledge about God was not a theoretical, but a practical concern. His supreme desire was to know and enjoy God himself. And he valued knowledge about God simply as a means to the end. He wanted to understand God's truth in order that his heart might respond to it and his life be conformed to it. See, the end of the truth it's delight in the one it speaks of. So it's, friends, it's a joyful thing we do. It's a joyful thing to delight in the Lord. And we want each other to delight all the more. This is what Paul is speaking of. See, we are on a corporate mission towards maturity. And point number three, <clears throat> how are we called to speak it? <clears throat> Sorry. How are we called to speak it? 
Well, he gives us the answer. We are to speak the truth, verse 15, in love. This is both the method and the motive for our speaking. See, if we obey this command, it must be accompanied by this half. No one is excused for speaking the truth without love. Don't expect Risen Hope Church to grow in Christ with truth-telling without loving. But this can seem vague. Does this mean no hard words that don't feel loving? Does this mean simply speaking the truth and just saying, well, that is loving? So what is the shape of love? Well, there's a lot that could be said here, right? What is love? What does it mean to love? But let me bring up the near context. Look again at verses 1 through 3 with me. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So friends, love is humble. And we shouldn't confuse that with timidity. See, timidity withholds because of fear has control over our hearts. Humility, however, comes to a person with a sense of our own need, of our own imperfections, of our own fallibility, but it still speaks. It still speaks. It's, so love is humble. We're to be humble with one another in addressing one another with the truth. Love is gentle. In Matthew, we see that Jesus' very own description of his heart one time where he says, this is my heart, he states that his heart is gentle and lowly. That he himself is gentle and lowly. So friends, when we're gentle, we mimic God. We mimic Christ. So husbands, fathers, are you gentle when you speak the truth to your family? Are you gentle when you speak the truth to your kids? It doesn't mean that there's not a hard or stern word. But do they, they, they see your gentleness? Or does your words have an edge of sarcasm? You know, wife, of course God's in control. Stop freaking out about it. Right? Is there truth in there? Yeah. Is it loving? Absolutely not. Love is patient. It bears with one another. Right? So we don't assume whatever we say is a one and done. It's life together. It's coming along someone patiently. One bit of truth for one issue. I mean, think about our own hearts, how stubborn our own hearts can be. Praise the Lord for the patience of others. Praise the Lord, most importantly, for the patience of God, that he is patient with us. He works out our salvation over time. He could have snapped and made us perfect, but he chose not to. He made it a process. So we're patient, bearing with one another, right? Sanctification takes time. And then love is courageous, but not contentious. See, it takes courage to speak the truth in love. It's, it doesn't always come naturally. It can feel awkward, right? We want to grow in it. It takes courage, but it's not self-promoting. It's not contentious, right? It's concerned with the unity of the church, it's not after just wielding the sword of truth 
because we feel like we're the person who corrects everything we see. It's not what's going on. It's not what Paul is calling us to. So love is courageous but not contentious. It pursues unity. And then I want to add another one. Uh, When we think about counseling, this is a pastoral one. Love is wise. Love is wise. So when it comes to speaking the the truth of the gospel to those sinning, struggling with sin or suffering, we're counseling them, right? Understanding timing, not all the truths are the right truths for the moment. Someone may need to hear the comfort of the gospel before the correction comes, right? We need to think well, right? We don't think Paul is saying throw the whole Bible at someone at any given point. He's not saying speak all the truths at one moment, right? So when we're counseling one, we want to be wise with what we're saying. We want to be thoughtful, caring, considerate. And counseling the truth and love implies several things, right? It implies knowing the person and the context. So we take into account verifiably biological issues, right? Just a simple example, it's probably a bad idea to have a really important deep conversation late at night. Why? Because our bodies are finite. We're finite people. We need sleep. So is it wise to withhold until it's a good time? Yes. Right, we want to understand their context. There's their suffering. What has been done to them? Proverbs says we must speak. We must understand the whole matter. We shouldn't speak rashly. Right? We want to speak in a way, as Paul talks about later in Ephesians, that builds up, that brings grace to those who hear. And I, you know, love listens. I could preach a whole sermon on that point. Um, and I don't want us to take from this that we aren't listening people. Listening in itself is a ministry to each other as we mimic God by listening well to one another. But our call as a church is to speak the truth in love, right? And we want to understand people's hearts. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Admonish, encourage, faint-hearted based on what is going on. Help the weak, be patient with them all. So we counsel the truth. We speak of it in a way that seeps into the cracks of their lives, both their sin and suffering, and points them to the God who saves. And I want to end with a story. Those were in the biblical counseling class earlier, heard this. I want to speak it to the church. There was a lady named Janet. She was given up as a baby for adoption, as a She was placed in a home. Her mom was a Sunday school teacher. Her dad was a deacon. But in their home, there were dark, hidden secrets. This lady's upbringing consisted of much verbal, emotional, and physical abuse. One story she recounted to me one day after she, her dad had a stressful day. She got back from school and she had a bad report card. Her dad beat her over it. This was the types of things going on. At one point, after being sat in a chair for 30 minutes and being verbally abused, being told she's worthless, that they hate her, they wish she didn't exist, she ran back to her room in desperation, flopped open the Bible, she's a believer, and asked the Lord to speak. In the Lord's kindness, it turned to Psalms 27, verse 10. For my father 
and my father, mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. And the Lord met her and spoke to her, and I will sustain you. Later in life, through some of the darkest days, the Lord showed her that he was her sufficiency. As the Lord took away every comfort, the Lord was her comfort. Eventually, the Lord used a marriage to pull her out of that scenario. And as, she, as her and her husband were in seminary, she began to be paralyzed by panic attacks, anxiety, fear. They crippled her life. And so they did what they thought to do. They took her to a Christian psychologist. Um, he actually never spoke the word of God to her or prayed for her. But in the Lord's kindness, he did bring up one biblical truth, and that's that her parents had sinned against her, that that was sin, and he gave her the ministry of listening ear. And so as she came back with that, she started wrestling with the Lord. The Lord spoke to her and said, you need to face this with me. You need to deal with your past and turn to me. And so she was like, no, Lord, I can't do that. And he was like, I have been with you all this time. I will be with you now. And so she sat down with her husband, and they went through hours of her story. During that time, the Lord impressed upon her heart that now that she had a category of being sinned against, she realized she was bitter. She had been in the bondage of bitterness towards her parents, not only for her own abuse, but the abuse of her brother as well. And in that moment, she would say, the Lord set her free from so much of her panic attacks, anxieties, and fears. Her husband would say it was like she was saved. Such was the life transformation of forgiveness. She realized that she needed to forgive her parents. And how, you know, how it is with sanctification, there were still propensities towards fear and occasional panic attacks. And she wrestled with the heart, why am I still struggling? And the Lord used a book, The Shepherd's Look at the 23rd Psalm. And there's an illustration of how a good shepherd takes a young lamb that runs away and breaks its leg, holds it near. And he spoke to her and said, that's what, I was, that's what I'm doing with you. If you were perfect, you wouldn't need me. And so she learned to walk with the Lord as the Lord met her. And eventually, she would also point to one of the most transformational times was when she began to study the attributes of God, who he is and what he does, and writing and filling out journals with those. And so the Lord matured her, restored her, healed her. And she would want me to tell you as well that years down the road, she was able to be reconciled with her parents in tears. Now, this story is my mom. It's the story of my mom. She's also this, she's the story of a lady redeemed by God. This is the story of our God at work in the world to save, to heal, restore, save. This is our God. And so as we come to this command to speak the truth in love, we don't come with our own sufficiency. We come excited at the work of God. Come excited at all that God is able to do to heal, restore, redeem, save. He is constantly working. And friends, we have the privilege of being a part of it. We have the privilege of having the mission of maturity. It takes the whole church. Maturity takes the whole church. 
I'm going to pray, and then we'll have a time of just, um, you can either converse, or if you want to come up to the front and just receive prayer, uh, we'll have some music going. I'd be happy to pray for you. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the God who saves, that you are the God who redeems, redeems, restores. Um, Thank you that you call us into the mission of maturity, Lord, to speak the truth in love, to counsel in love, to exhort in love, to admonish one another in love, and uh, be used by you, Lord. We thank you that you are a God who hears our prayers, hears our cries, listens to us in our mess. Lord, thank you that you use the weakness of mankind, the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise. Lord, that you use us, even though we're unworthy, even though we're imperfect. We're on our own, we're on a path to maturity, yet you use us for the your, your glory and good of others. So, Lord, I ask for our church for this next season of life that we would grow in this all the more, that we would think well about life and scripture and how they meet and mesh together, that our worldviews would become the way that we live our lives for your glory. And uh, we thank you for the work of Christ, Jesus. Thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection on behalf of sinners like us. Lord, we are overwhelmed by your love, your care, your kindness, your goodness to us, so undeserved. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.